This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, intimate distance. One of the things I've always loved about the Southern Gothic is the big old mess it makes of good and evil. Few characters are ever completely irredeemable, but also nobody is innocent. Gabrielle Bates, who grew up in the Deep South, does something similar in her debut collection titled Judas Goat. Let me just read you a few lines from one of her poems. It starts with this couple and they're in their kitchen. And it's clear something happened to the man, but he doesn't want to say what, and then he starts talking anyway. Okay, so here goes. I saw a dog, he said. I was on the train. A man with a dog on a leash. The man ran and made it, but the dog hesitated outside and the doors closed. No, not on his neck, on the leash, trapping it. The man was inside and the dog was outside on the platform. The button beside the door, ringed in light, blinked. The man was shouting now, hitting the button, all else silent. The befuddlement of dog pulled along, the pace slow until it wasn't. The tunnel the train must pass through leaving the station is a perfectly calibrated, unforgiving fit. It's so upsetting that it made me wonder who to blame. The owner? The person driving the train? The dog? And why do I get the sense that the person telling the story feels guilty too? But when I sat down to talk to Gabrielle, I didn't want to hit her right away with questions about good and evil. So my first question was about the place where she grew up, near Birmingham, Alabama. Can you take me to that place, you know, like your house, the landscape? I don't know if you had like a favorite tree or like, can you make it really granular? Like, what was your world? Yeah. Oh, I love this invitation. I grew up sort of bouncing back and forth between a pretty small neighborhood just outside of Birmingham and a little white house right across the street from a Presbyterian church. So I could see the stained glass Jesus from my kitchen table where I sat for all my meals. In the backyard, we had some trees that my dad planted, including a maple tree that I say we planted it together, but I was really too young to actually help. And we also planted a mulberry tree. Oh, I love mulberries. And that is just yes, the most delicious uh, fruit. What an incredible fruit. Yeah. Just kind of falls apart in the mouth. Yeah. Um, and so dark, such a dark fruit. Exactly. It stains you, you yes. know, beyond repair, but it's great. Yes. Oh, beyond repair. I love <laughs> I love that phrase. Um, so I, I say I bounce back and forth between that setting and where my mom was living, which was in some other neighborhoods and often right in downtown Birmingham. So not a lot of kids grew up um, downtown. There's There wasn't a lot of like residential opportunities there at the time, but um, there was a huge white flight in Birmingham in response to the civil rights movement. 
And it really just kind of decimated downtown in some ways. Like, didn't even have a grocery store. Like, it was just where people worked, really. It was like businesses. So my mom bought this abandoned slaughterhouse that had been abandoned for many years. It was just covered in dust. And that was where she worked and where we lived for a little while. Um, Yeah, so my childhood and my home, the place I grew up in, is sort of a constellation within the Birmingham area, I would say. And so the slaughterhouse, did it have any visible remnants of it being a slaughterhouse? Oh, yeah. It had, in the basement, drains for the blood, um, really big um, industrial doorways for the animals to be brought in from the back alley. The elevators were massive because they needed to be able to carry animal carcasses up the five stories. There were old smokers that were still there. Um, with just like these huge iron doors. And th- those were the main signs, <laughs> I would say, that, that yeah, remained. Yeah. And how did you feel about the concept of a slaughterhouse? I think it felt somewhat abstract, actually. As much as I loved animals and was obsessed with animals, I didn't have a lot of firsthand experience seeing them slaughtered or or slaughtering them myself. Um, Fish I'd seen, but not livestock. And so it was, it was a haunting idea. And yet I think because I was experiencing it through ghosts, for lack of a better word, it felt more in the realm of magic than real life. Yeah, it, it haunted me for sure, but I was also, I was interested in it. Uh-huh. I, I don't want to typecast you, so if I'm doing that, please protect me for myself. But I felt in your collection these undercurrents of the Southern Gothic. And I'm wondering, like, does that resonate with you at all? Like, is that a tradition that you feel close to Yes, I do. I don't feel typecast by that at all. I I think that's absolutely a major influence and inspiration in my poetics is this gnarly, kind of twisted up, God-haunted, eerie, yet sacred, a little bit of dark humor, a little bit of severity. I really loved Faulkner as a teenager. I grew up reading O'Connor's short stories. So there is definitely something in the grotesque of the Southern Gothic that has always appealed to me. And yeah, I don't mind being a part of that tradition at all. I, I have questions about, you know, what the Southern Gothic really is and what it can mean and how people have been troubling it and pushing the aesthetic of it. Um, I, I still have a lot to learn about that tradition, but I I do feel myself to be a part of it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in what 
it was like for you when you first started discovering those kinds of novels and reading them, kind of the glasses that they gave you to look through, what it was like then to look at your environment? Like, did it heighten something about where you were or like did it explain it? Like, what what did it change for you? I think reading those books distorted experience in a way that felt exciting to me and also like a way that maybe I could get at a truth of an experience. It was a way of distancing myself, ironically, from the place I was in, which I kind of desperately wanted to get out of and experience other places. And so it's funny that writing that came out of the South that's interested in the South was sort of my, one of my earliest escapes from it because it showed me how literature can be that sort of intimate distance. And then when I moved away from the South, those literatures of the South, I I felt more empowered to try and write my own work in that tradition. There's something that happens when you're physically in a place that can be really difficult to see it and engage with it because you don't have that point of contrast and you don't have that necessary distance that allows the imagination to breathe, you know, like a fire needs air. I don't know if that's answering your question anymore. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that makes so much sense uh, that, that it's a form that you almost connected to more or that became more generative, you know, uh, like necessary for you once you were no longer there. And, you know, just because you were saying that you kind of wanted to escape your home base. And I'm wondering, like, what were the points of friction for you? I think I always had, even though I was a very cautious person by disposition and somewhat fearful by disposition, I also had this just massive sense of adventure. And that may have come from reading all those novels, but I just hungered to to experience more of the world. And I could feel all of the stereotypes of Southernness bearing down on me from inside of it. And that was one of many of the pressures that made me feel very stifled and like I did not want to be from there or of that place. And But I, I always would be, I knew. And even more than that, I always would be if I didn't ever leave it. And I studied other accents and I tried very hard from a pretty early age, actually, to not sound southern and as an adult now it makes me so sad because i i think accents are so beautiful and i think my family's accents are beautiful my parents and i can't get it back i really can't i mean it it's conjured back in little bits here and there and there are certain words i'll always say with a little bit of an accent because i can't help it but um It feels very fake if I try to talk like my family. It feels like a, a costume I'm putting on. 
That's interesting. Um, but I also felt so constricted by just the general culture that I was growing up in and the type of Christianity that I was steeped in and devoted to and these ideas about what a woman was supposed to be and how she was supposed to act and how she was supposed to think. Um, and I just more and more and more could feel that the true me was not compatible with all of these pressures. And I thought, you know, maybe by by leaving this place, I will relieve that pressure and, and feel some freedom to try to figure out, yeah, a little more of who I actually am outside of these expectations that I was so desperate to try to meet for so long. Uh-huh. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned as one of those pressures, the Christianity that you were raised with. And of course, your collection is titled Judas Goat, which is only one of the many references to the Bible or, or scripture. And And so I want to know a little bit more, like what kind of Christianity were you raised within and then how much were you within it or were you already kind of a little bit on the outside of it? Like, you know, what was the kind of faith water that you were swimming in? It was a little unconventional, even by Alabama standards, the sort of Christianity that I grew up in. We had what we called home church that was really just, and this isn't my dad's home. On Sundays, it would be me, my dad, and my stepmother, and that would be it. And I would read the Bible a lot, and I would pray pretty much constantly. Um, I can't remember a time in my childhood when I wasn't praying all the time, um, that my thoughts didn't feel like a conversation with God as I understood God. So I very much identified myself as a Christian and I had all these people at school who were constantly inviting me to their churches because for them, Christianity looked very different and it looked like going into a building, going into a church. And so I visited a ton of different churches with friends. I went to a bunch of different kinds of churches of various denominations with my mom when I visited her. So it, it was a little odd, my my brand of Christianity that I grew up in and somewhat self-directed, but not really. But there was that element of me just studying the Bible on my own and gravitating to certain books of the Bible because they were the ones that called to me the most. Um, so it, it was a source of of meaning making for a long time that made the world feel like it had an, an added layer of depth. You know, I was reading Christian symbolism into everything. Um, and, and there's some way that, that that earliest way of moving through the world with that particular kind of Christian lens will always be with me, even as I, you know, continue to ask questions about faith and Christianity and, and other religions. 
Um, but that that was sort of the lay of the land, if that was clear at all. Absolutely. I mean, I actually had, have never heard of a home church. It, it, you know, homeschooling is a concept I'm familiar with, but I didn't know that this was a thing that people did. And so I'm wondering, were you, I mean, you already said, like, you know, there were certain books that you were drawn to. Am I understanding it correctly that you got a lot of freedom then in the way that you explored your faith? Or what did those Sundays look like? It was a really odd mix because on the one hand, I was quite empowered in a way that's kind of cool to me looking back. You know, not every little girl is told that, you know, her interpretations of the Bible have value in any sort of religious setting, you know. And freedom is certainly not the word that comes to mind when I think of those times, um, when I think of that type of church, because, I mean, uh, my stepmother was a complicated figure in my life, and she was really running the show. So it, it did not feel free. It felt like a really kind of terrifying scrutiny, um, spiritual scrutiny that I was subject to on a weekly basis and then some. And I, I really cherished a lot of those times, just me alone with the text. It was probably my earliest... Well, no, because I loved novels more, but because I was told that th this text was the ultimate text and that it was living. You know, we talked about language in the Bible as alive. And, and this was so many years before I really knew that poetry existed. But this idea of a living language really, really called to me and felt right to me that that needed to be a part of my life that that might have something to do with why I was on this earth. So, oh, it's so complicated. And I think that's why I'm drawn to poetry is because it makes a space for me to reckon with all these really complicated pushes and pulls and twisted up polarizations and It's a place where I don't have to have all the answers, even if I'm writing from a declarative mode or something. It's still all me asking questions and excavating and imagining and saying things I think I might believe to see if they sound true or not. Um, that's where I feel the freedom is is in poetry. Uh -huh. And I don't know if I understood this correctly, but you said something that, you know, what really drew you to that text was that the language was alive. And I don't think I know what you mean, because when I read the Bible, it looks not terribly alive. You know, of course, I wasn't raised religious, but like it's the language is difficult, you know? Yes. And I think that idea that the language is alive wasn't an observational thing. It was something I was told. Um, I think it's based on a particular verse in the Bible and something to do with how a word is translated from, you know, the Greek or the Hebrew, where the word that means text or word also means something that's alive. Huh. So, so this was an idea that I was told about the Bible, not an observation I was having of it. 
But that idea that language could be alive lodged in me somewhere and began to apply to other texts as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I'd like to pull two strings out of, you know, what we were talking about together, um, Christianity and the Slaughterhouse, uh, because, again, your collection is titled Judas Goat. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, like, well, first of all, what is the concept of a Judas Goat and where did you learn about it? The Judas Goat, as the title poem sort of defines it, is a goat that's trained to live with the sheep that leads the sheep in and out of the slaughterhouse so that the sheep don't panic, so that they don't realize that they're about to be slaughtered as they would if a human was leading them into the slaughterhouse. So they they learn to trust this goat as one of their pack, one of their herd, and and this goat leads them in, and then the goat gets to leave the slaughterhouse and the sheep don't. So it's this kind of added level of domestication and training towards this very sinister end. And I don't remember exactly when I learned that the Judas goat was a thing, like that this was a type of trained goat that existed out in the world. But I... My memory is so bad and I don't remember exactly how I heard of it. <laughs> of it could have been a random thing on the internet. It could have been something I was researching purposefully, like looking into different kinds of animals who had been named for Judas. I honestly cannot remember exactly. And do you recollect if it was actually called a Judas goat or did you name it? That. It is called a Judas goat. Like that is not a phrase that I invented at all. So that's not my term. Judas goat is not my term. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think what is so fascinating about it is, well, Judas, of course, I mean, like Judas betrayed Jesus out of his own volition, right? Whereas this goat supposedly doesn't really know what kind of charade he's a part of, right? Like it's 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 actually the human being who is the you know, the one who pulls the strings, you know, yes. it seems unfair to the goat. <laughs> yes, you know? as so many things in regards to goats are, it's it's totally unfair. I mean, goats have a kind of dark and subversive reputation throughout history, which is so interesting to me. And, you know, we have this idea of the scapegoat. Um, I... Yeah, there's these poor goats. As human beings, we've we've saddled them with so much and abused them in so many ways. And it's precisely that layer of the interaction between ignorance and culpability that's just endlessly fascinating and haunting to me as a person. And so I saw in this animal, this Judas goat who's been trained to be a betrayer who may have no knowledge of of what sort of role it's playing i just i became really interested in that do you want to read the poem oh sure be happy to judas goat we of our ends are perhaps all this oblivious one goat trained to live with the sheep 
neck bell jingling in and out of the slaughterhouse. To the goat, the shackling pen is no more than another human room. After, it's fed a feast of roughage, sprigs of sage timothy, cedar chips, carrot beards. It sleeps. What sheep? Wild goat's eyes, when we catch them, are always open, but this goat dreams. Its lips twitch as it lies, curled chin to thurl behind the pen. Each morning, that silver bell is affixed to its neck. It leads the flock. Whiter than all the loose-legged lambs, it approaches under a bright summer sun, the gate. Grass on either side, green. I am too dying of what? I don't know. Thank you. Well, you know, what I thought was so interesting about this poem was like, when I just heard about the concept, I thought, oh, this is so mean to the goat. It's unfair. You know, what, what, what can they help it? You know, but then the way that you complicate that in this poem is really interesting to me. You know, um, uh, it sleeps. What sheep? You know, it's kind of like it's already sort of the sh- the sleeping and the sleeping sort of the sleep of the innocent you know is is it has already forgotten about the sheep you know it does make me think okay goat maybe you do know what's up you know wild goat's eyes when we catch them are always open but this goat dreams like it just seems as if like it's such a happy dream too i i don't think that this goat is necessarily dreaming of slaughter oh absolutely because while this goat is innocent in the fact that the goat was trained to do this thing and probably doesn't have a lot of power over that, it is still guilty in this way. Like, it still did the action, whether it understands what it did or not. And so that's the the space that's really interesting to me is, yeah, what sorts of harms are we doing that we might not even be conscious of and yet we are still their agent I don't know if I can say anything very eloquent about it except that I as just a human being Gabrielle Bates am really haunted by the harms I might be doing without even knowing it that I might have even been trained towards doing Yeah, that's kind of the inevitable question, right, that I had for you. Can you remember a time in your life where you were struck by your own culpability? Let me think for just a second. Um, This stepmother I had when I was a child created a lot of mythologies about my birth mother And I felt so conflicted by these things that I was being told were true, that didn't feel true. So because I, I, that was the water I was swimming in, I've had to do a lot of undoing in regards to that particular mythology. And I think part of writing this book was writing towards some of the the fears and terrors and nightmares that grew up 
out of that soil. Um, but I have certainly felt betrayed by that story and that um, sort of family mythology of my childhood that in some ways tried to keep me from seeing my mom as a real person, you know? And when did you wake up? What, was there a specific instance or was it just age and distance? Like, it, when did you turn from a goat in, into the human <laughs> who can see these things? Yeah, I don't think I ever fully bought into the mythology. I, I was really torn apart by it. I was really split by it my entire childhood. And I can remember in my earliest diaries that I kept as a kid, I was always writing about how I felt like I had these two different consciences in my head and I couldn't figure out which one was real. Like, I feel like I have this one conscience that's been created by this figure in my life, this stepmother. And then I have my lived experience and my observations and I can't figure out what the truth is. And so it wasn't that I had this revelatory waking up epiphany moment. It was just this long, prolonged splitness that then once that stepmother was no longer in my life anymore, I really felt free to process um, because I, mm. I no longer felt the pressure to try and believe the false version in any way. I, I could just kind of fully put that one aside. But of course, um, you know, there, there's a line in the book that's something like, what the self forms around cannot be undone, you know, in the same ways that myself grew up around certain ideas of faith, myself grew up around certain stories I was being told about family and what it meant to be a mother and who I should love and how, you know, that's something I, I get to reckon with forever, you know, in, in good ways and bad. Yeah. And today, do you carry bitterness or, or resentment or rage mm. that you've missed out on so much of her? There have been periods in my life when I did feel that very strongly. Although for me in general, my anger manifests as sadness. So I'm always the one who, who cries when they're mad. Um, so there, there is a, a sense of loss and mourning over that aspect of my childhood and adolescence. And it definitely isn't what consumes me now. I'm so grateful and, and full of joy and excited by my relationship with yeah all my family members who, who are still alive. And um, my mom is this amazing artist in her own right. She's a photographer. We're actually collaborating now on a short film version of one of my poems, The Bridge. Wow. So it's really exciting. And, and we always sort of had this sense growing up that my adulthood would be our time together because we had this person <laughs> keeping us apart in many ways. But there was this sense that once I sort of came of age and was an adult and was out on my own and could 
have a relationship with my mom without that mediation in between that that would be our time to really hang out and get to spend a lot of time together and that's and that's exactly what's happened is a a poem in your book that actually made me cry. Mm. It doesn't happen so often, merely reading words on a page, you know? That's really one of the highest compliments. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's that poem called Sabbath. Uh, it's on page uh, 32 in my version. Yeah, I've got it. Sabbath. Round white mushrooms emerge in clusters overnight, soil scattered across their brows like Catholics bearing ash. It's taken me almost a decade to admit it. I miss. I've missed feeding all my thoughts through that revolving blade, so thin it could only be felt. I've missed that arrowing of the, I almost said, soul. But it was the mind, mostly, wasn't it, that winnowed. I knew God listened, and I knew where to aim. All the time, every second, I lacked, but with aim. Um, yeah. Do, do you feel like that poem is more naked, more vulnerable, more something, you know? Yes, <laughs> I do. It felt like an extremely vulnerable confession. It was one I had a hard time admitting even to myself. And so to mm -hmm. write towards it, to try to attach language to it in this way, it did feel incredibly vulnerable and, and truly confessional. You know, what the confessional means in regards to poetry um, is varied and, and there are many different definitions, but um, in terms of just making a, a confession, this felt truly like one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also like a kind of elegy that I haven't seen a lot of before, you know, we see lots of elegies for family members who have died and whatnot, but this particular kind of elegy for a kind of faith felt very vulnerable to disclose, probably because I, I hadn't seen it done before, which isn't to say it doesn't exist, um, mm -hmm. just that I hadn't encountered it. Yeah, I mean, this poem, it it just it just kind of knocked the wind out of me uh, from the very first line, you know, the, the way you the opening image um, round white mushrooms emerge in clusters overnight, soil scattered across their brows like Catholics bearing ash, you know, because it, you, you, the poem is about the most interior thing you can imagine, you know, the speaker's relationship to God and so it's incredible that you start with an image that is very concrete. 
that kind of grounds you, well, literally in the earth, you know, like <laughs> with the mushrooms. And then that second sentence, if I can use that word, it's taken me almost a decade to admit it. I miss. Yeah, the ellipse of that. The fact that you don't even say what you miss, but in so many ways you've already said it. Um, and it makes the missing even more like missing, you know, because the thing you miss is literally missing. <laughs> um, yeah. And I wonder, was it always like this? Did you, was that a later edit or, or how did that come to be? This poem didn't change a ton from its earliest draft. And I believe mm -hmm. that those first sentences haven't really changed. And I appreciate you, you know, talking about how it starts with an image. And, you know, this book is dedicated for the image for so many reasons. But one of them is the way that Imagery can be an anchor for these ideas and feelings that are just impossible to approach otherwise. I think without being rooted quite literally in the ground in this poem, I never could have made the leap to the confession that I needed to say. Or if I did, readers wouldn't come with me and feel it the way I needed them to. <laughs> um, Because the image is the bridge. The image is what activates the, the body of the reader, the person hearing the poem. And that's so magic to me, that capability of imagery. And I feel really grateful and indebted to it for, for that reason and for many yeah. other reasons. I mean, there's so much religion writing that I just cannot read because it's too up there you know it immediately it wants to rush to the god stuff you know and it's like you you cannot that has to kind of emerge naturally out of out of everything else you're saying you know and i mean like look in my totally <laughs> yeah uh, i agree you know, i completely agree we we know things through our senses first and so to try to skip that part of the process feels both untrue to how human beings interact with the world and yeah, like it's going to make it a lot harder for, for a reader to come with you. Yeah. And then of course, I mean, the, the end, you know, um, first the kind of tragedy of like, I knew God listened, like the certainty of that. It's so declarative, you know, um, like without any complication, you knew God listened and I knew where to aim um, all the time every second I lacked mm -hmm. but with aim I mean it just broke it just broke my heart mm. it's because it's so true you know it uh, it didn't break my heart because it's sad it just broke my heart because it's true uh, um, no I'm gonna cry thank you <laughs> thank you so much for yeah. that Yeah, and I and I also thought, you know, it was it was you know there was a kind of irony about that, you know, because you write with such precision, with such aim about this thing, right? About about this experience of losing that conversation 
with God. It was always listening. But again, you know, you write it with such perfect aim that it almost negates, you know, this description of your current uh, aimlessness. The fact that in in this poem you were so so capable of precisely uh, naming this loss, um, did it do anything to help soften it? I think it was a really important breakthrough in just my personal life and acknowledging this loss as a loss and not just sort of continuing this fiction that, you know, my, my faith continued in a certain kind of way, which isn't, I'm not quite ready to say I, I don't have faith at all, but I, I did feel like this was a a major and, and important breakthrough in terms of me being honest with myself about where I stood in relationship to faith. Um, But in terms of the reverberations afterward, I, I don't think it's changed a ton. I do feel like I might be about ready to go back and engage with the Bible as a reader again. Like, I'm not quite so hurt by its betrayals to me now that I could revisit it with different eyes and a little bit of a different mind. And um, I, I think that might be rewarding, actually, to to study that text in a different way. I've had to take quite a time away from it. Um, but um, but yeah, maybe maybe I'm on the cusp of a change in that department. You know what I what I love about this poem and so many other poems in in your book is that there's a conversation between you and little you. You know, you talk about. Um, little you feeding her all her thoughts through that revolving blade so thin it could only be felt i love that image by the way you know mm-hmm. and then and then that revolving blade is gone or it stopped turning and where then do you go with all your thoughts and so i'm wondering like how do you feel towards little mm-hmm. you today i feel very tender and very distant from my childhood self at this point, you know, today. It could change tomorrow, I don't know, but right now, today, I feel like she's she's a very far away figure who I feel a lot of gentleness towards, and I, I'm sure many people feel this way to some extent, but I'd I'd like to go back and save her from some things and tell her some things. Um, But I feel tender. What would you most like to tell her? Mm. You can't be perfect, so stop trying. (laughs) Probably. Um, I would also love to tell her that there's a difference between performing well 
by certain metrics and learning and that consecrating your life to learning is immensely more valuable. And like stepping away from like advice mode or something, you know, like, is there like a scene from your life that you would really love to show your younger self? Like if your younger self had just like a little peephole <laughs> through which for a moment she could glance at your life now, mm. what is the scene that you would like to show her? Can you take me there? What do you see? What are you doing? Like, what are you wearing even? Oh my gosh. I mean, that was a really helpful cue you gave me because there was a lot of stress in my childhood and adolescence about clothes and what I was allowed to wear versus what I wanted to wear. And I, I wanted to be kind of gorgeous and sexy in this way that was absolutely forbidden, completely forbidden. And so I I think I would be shocked and thrilled just to like see me in my lime green blazer mini skirt combo that I just got for my book launch, you know? Like she would just be <laughs> like, <great>. wow. <laughs> oh. I also love that like the thing that you that you lift out of that scene is like not the fact that you just had a book launch, right? Which I'm sure your little you would appreciate. No, it's the lime green uh, mini suit. That is really very sweet. Yeah, <laughs> she, she'd be thrilled by so much of my life now. That is beautiful. I'm so happy for both of you. <laughs> Gabrielle Bates's debut collection is titled Judas Goat, and she's received funding and fellowships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Princeton Poetry Festival, Artist Trust, and Hugo House. Besides writing, she co-hosts the podcast The Poet Salon and teaches poetry through Hugo House, the Rosenbach Museum, and the University of Washington Center in Rome. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefus and Erik van der Westen. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>